Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 12, and we will be reading verses 1 through 8 today, although I will tell you ahead of time we will not make it all the way through this uh, section uh, because of the depth of primarily the first two verses. And so, again, I invite you to listen carefully now to God's holy and inspired word. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. And if it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. We come today to a major shift in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We have mentioned on several occasions over the course of our study that Paul's use of the little Greek word un, which we translate as therefore, is always to be considered carefully, for it indicates a conclusion based on what has been stated before. And in most cases, his conclusion follows immediately after his assertions, and it is easy to see how one thing led logically to another. But as we come to the therefore in verse 1 of chapter 12, we need to realize that this conclusion is based upon the entire argument that Paul has been making since the beginning of his letter. What Paul is about to set forth for his readers is our response to all that God has accomplished in Christ Jesus, an atoning work that has brought about a fundamental change in every single person who has been redeemed by faith alone in Christ alone and changed from an enemy of God into one of his children. Now one of the earmarks of this shift 
is found in the language that Paul uses. In the first portion of his letter, Paul has been careful to avoid the imperative mood. That is to say that he has intentionally avoided statements that would speak of our necessity to do anything. He issues hardly any commands, but rather he speaks in the indicative mood, making declarations as to what we are, matters of fact. Now, the question arises, why would he do such a thing? And the reason is simply this. Until a person recognizes that what he is, a helpless sinner incapable of doing anything that God commands, that person will not lay hold of Christ and his atoning work by faith alone because he will still believe that he can do something that will please God enough to save him. Now, in Paul's letter, there are 62 sentences in this entire letter that contain verbs in the imperative mood. 49 of them, however, appear in chapters 12 through 16. Now, that tells us that before Paul ever commands his listeners to do anything, they must first comprehend that their justification... Their being made right with God has nothing to do with their obedience to the law or with their fulfilling any commands, but it rests solely upon the grace of God in Christ Jesus by faith. And so it is not until Paul has completed that full argument that he's ready now to draw any conclusions as to what results from what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So when he comes to this, therefore we must never lose sight of the fact that the commands he is about to make have nothing to do with establishing our justification. For that's been accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. Paul is about to describe for these believers and for every believer what the Christian life looks like now that we've been made new in Christ. What he's about to describe is what life looks like for us since the Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence in us. It is because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ that he can issue these commands. It is because we were buried with him by baptism unto death so we might walk in newness of life that he can command these things. It is because there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that he can say these things. So what does he say? Well, he begins this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, here's a statement that does not carry quite the same weight for us as it did for the first century believers because we are largely ignorant of the practice of animal sacrifice. But throughout the ancient world, offering animals unto God, or the gods as the Gentiles would have done, would have been a most common practice. And such sacrifices would have involved choosing an animal that was the best of the best, all in an effort to appease or to atone or to thank or to in some other 
way satisfy divine demands as the worshiper would have understood them. And so when Paul appeals to these brothers in the faith, he is using this imagery, but with a very different twist to it. For they are no longer to offer up the body of a goat or a lamb or a cow, but rather they are to give their own bodies up to God. They are to see themselves as the worshiper, bringing themselves to the Lord and presenting themselves to him in complete surrender. They are to forfeit any claim upon themselves, but see themselves as belonging to God, ready to do whatever God bids them to do. The justification for such an appeal is stated in that phrase, by the mercies of God. In other words, because of the mercies of God, or on account of the mercies of God, because God has extended mercy and grace beyond measure to you and has equipped you with a new nature, courtesy of God's indwelling Spirit, I implore you to present your bodies unto God as a living sacrifice. Now, Paul is urging the saints in Rome to respond to the grace of God through an act of surrender. To essentially say to God, Lord, I am at your disposal. Whatever you choose to do with me, I am here reporting for duty. It is to emulate the response of the prophet Isaiah to God when the Lord asks, Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, Here am I, send me. Now, this is a monumental decision for many in the sense that there are those who operate under the mistaken notion that our response to God is negotiable. They seem to be under the impression that how much of us God gets is actually up to us. That's not an option. When we respond to the grace of God in Christ by faith, God stakes His claim to all of us. When Paul was Saul of Tarsus, the thought never crossed his mind when the risen and glorified Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus that there was any other option than to do exactly what the Lord commanded him to do. And Paul is not leaving the door open to a negotiated settlement with the saints in Rome either. What he's urging them to do is to respond quite willingly to the claim that God has placed upon their lives by surrendering their bodies to God rather than to the things they had surrendered them to in the past. Now, what were those? Well, if we were to go back to chapter 6, we would discover that Paul uses this same word about presentation there. And he says in verse 13, Do not Present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And then a few verses later in 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 
our response to the saving grace of God is to willingly make an offering of ourselves to God, which brings to mind Paul's admonition to the Corinthians when he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And you see, that's it. We are to do so because knowing what we once were, sinners condemned to eternal death, but now saved by grace through faith unto eternal life, we owe all that we are to Him who saved us and died for us and rose again for us, who even now intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. And so Paul says, we are urged to willingly present our bodies unto the Lord, holy and acceptable to Him, which is our spiritual worship or our reasonable service. Now here is an appeal to every believer to work towards their own sanctification. That is, while our efforts at justification are not only without effect, but those are an offense to God, once we've been justified by His grace through faith in Christ, at that point our wills have been set free from their bondage to sin, and we've been set free to follow the Spirit in a way that is beneficial to our spiritual development. Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, Paul is not saying that they should work for their salvation, but rather they've been saved, so now they are to work out that salvation so that it becomes more and more apparent to others that they are the disciples of Jesus Christ. Paul says back in Romans chapter 8 that those whom God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And as believers, this is our destination to be conformed to the image of the Son. Which is why Paul then says here in chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, I probably do not need to make a case for why we do not want to be conformed to this world, for even the average person on the street can look at the world and reach the conclusion that it is seriously messed up. But having said that, is it not true that the resistance we put up to the world and its thought processes is anemic at best? Consider the change in thinking that has occurred in the church on a host of issues that the Scriptures clearly teach are antithetical to the character of Christ. Consider the surveys that I have quoted from time to time on the state of theology in the church on some of the most basic doctrinal teachings and how wide are the opinions of those who consider themselves to be evangelical Christians. Such shifts in thinking are due to the influence of the thinking of the world upon the church. More than the influence of the godly thoughts of the church 
upon the world. And Paul's command here is to be transformed by the renewal of your mind because he knows that in order to behave differently, we need to stop thinking as we did when we were of the world and begin to think as those who are members of the household of God. But how does that happen? Well, interestingly, the verb here is a present passive imperative, which is to say that this transformation is an ongoing process, and it isn't that we are transforming ourselves, but rather we are posing no resistance to what is truly the work of the indwelling Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is engaged in the work of transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And our job, if you want to call it that, is to not frustrate the efforts of the Spirit in us. To not grieve the Spirit, but rather to willingly cooperate with the Spirit. And this, he says, requires a tested discernment. Now, there are a variety of issues that face Christians in the world that are clearly true for all believers everywhere at all times without exception. Stealing is never righteous for the disciples of Christ. Adultery is never acceptable for those who follow Jesus. Bearing false witness is criminal in the, in, in the eyes of the Lord. But there are other issues that are not nearly so clear-cut. And we will see this when we get further into this letter. And just as an example, the issue of meeting, eating meat that had been offered to idols, that was a stumbling block for some believers, but to others, it was no big deal. Well, we could begin a long list of similar practices that Christians disagree over, but Paul's point here is that the transformation that the indwelling spirit is engaged in involves the transformation of the inner man to the degree that our new thoughts lead us in new directions. Instead of responding to the desires of the flesh as we were once accustomed to do, we are now governed by thoughts that have been inspired by the Spirit. Instead of responding to a habit that was once characteristic of our life before Christ, we now respond to a well-considered rationale born of a search of the Scriptures. But as this transformation continues and our thinking becomes shaped more and more by the influence of the Spirit, when we come to issues that appear to be quite perplexing, we will discover that by testing, it is possible to discern that which is the will of God. Now, what does Paul mean by testing here? Well, here is a word that means to examine or to prove. It is a word that connotes a process of making sure. And so in the case of ethical confusion, where we want to be certain that we are being obedient under God, we would want to test whether a particular option was agreeable to God or not. And such teaching or examination would involve a search of the Scriptures to look for similar episodes in the lives of the saints who have gone before us. But it would also involve conversations with saints that we now know whose own walk with Christ has been genuine and they possess a spiritual wisdom. It would involve dedicating ourselves to prayer, seeking guidance from the Lord, 
perceiving whether or not circumstances were presenting themselves one way or the other, or whether we were experiencing God's peace about one particular choice over another. Paul is saying that as we present our bodies unto the Lord as a living sacrifice and undergo this transformation of our minds, that as we grow spiritually through this kind of testing and discernment, we will begin to discern the things of God to an uncommon degree and that we will discover that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. One of the difficulties that believers have is when their thoughts are governed more by the world than by the Spirit. And we must never forget that the world is on a collision course with the Lord of Lords. So aligning ourselves with the so-called wisdom of the world will only result in more spiritual confusion and frustration. Paul is saying that when we willingly give ourselves over to this sanctifying work of the Spirit, who is making us new from the inside out, that it will change our thinking, it will change our desires, it will change our sensitivities, it will attune our ears to the voice of the Lord, it will make us more and more like Christ. And as it does so, we will discover that the desires of the flesh that once governed our choices are being mortified. They are being put to death. And new desires are taking their place such that we are now walking in the paths of righteousness or according to the will of God. And as we do so, we will discover that this is truly good, that it is fully acceptable to us, or to put it another way, it is most pleasing to us and that it is perfect for us because this is what we were originally created, created for. The question that many of you that have gone through the Westminster uh, catechisms know that first question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is designed to bring about that reality in us. To align our thinking, our behavior, our attitudes, our desires, our inclinations, our words with the will of God. And there is no perfect, more perfect way of doing that than to conform us to the image of the Son. For the Son never failed to follow the will of His Father perfectly. Now we are out of time today, but let me suggest to you that much of the rest of Paul's letter will cause you discomfort and perhaps raise an argumentative spirit within you if you have not yet come to a place of willingly surrendering yourself to the Lord as Paul urges his brothers to do. If in your mind you are attempting to keep one foot in the world even as you believe you have one foot in the door of heaven, what is about to follow will not make a great deal of sense to you because our sinful default position is to think like the world. But Paul is about to utter lots and lots of imperatives, commands that are divinely inspired. And if you have not yet responded to the mercies of God by presenting your whole self to God in willing surrender, 
ready to obey, then you may find yourself bristling at these imperatives. Let me say that to do so is to engage in argument with Almighty God. For God and God alone knows what is truly good and acceptable and perfect for His children. And so if you have not yet come to that point of surrender, let me invite you to renew your commitment to following Christ without any reservation, giving yourself wholeheartedly to His command, responding to His call as did Isaiah when He said, Here am I, send me. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment that we might pray.